Hello, ladies. Thank you so much for joining us online today as we continue our study of Revelation. And this is the day we've been waiting for, the spectacular return of Jesus Christ to the earth. So I thought it would be appropriate if we pause for a couple minutes and worship Jesus as we listen to the Christ Chapel Choir and Orchestra perform the Hallelujah Chorus. This is a recording from a couple years ago during the Christmas cantata. So if you want, close your eyes, worship a minute as we listen. Thank you for listening. Maybe some of you sang along with that. I am so happy that we can finish our study of Revelation. We just have three more weeks, so I hope that we can finish strong. I am Deb Haygood, part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and it is a great joy and a great pleasure to be here with all of you today studying God's Word together. Now, this room is empty, but as I look out there, I feel like I can see your smiling faces looking back at me. So glad to be here studying Revelation, and today it's chapter 19. It's what we've all been waiting for. Since the very beginning of the study of Revelation, we have been waiting for Jesus to come back to earth and make all things right. When Jesus comes back, everything wrong with this world will be sorted out and everything will change. 
Now, change is something that we have been dealing with a lot recently. Lots of change going on, more than you probably uh, ever thought or uh, could imagine. I know, how did I know? I could still cook seven meals in a row. And some of you are laughing because I know you are there too. Who knew that we could do that? Lots of changes for the little ones as well. Um, my granddaughters have been thinking about this change. And when all of this happened, it was during spring break. And so I have to tell you this story of little Harper. She's my youngest granddaughter. She's in kindergarten. And during spring break, my daughter-in-law had someone come to paint their living room and dining room. And it was beautiful, but it was quite different. It was very light color. And around that same time is when they decided school was gonna be canceled so they didn't have to go back to school after spring break and um, people were gonna be working from home and they couldn't go visit their friends, lots of changes. And so little Harper wrote this. Dear diary, when someone came to paint our house, I realized that things can change. <laughs> I thought that was cute. That's for her, it all happened when they painted the living room. We are all trying to deal with change, but ladies, um, this is a drop in the bucket to how things will change when Jesus comes back to earth. And before we get to that coming back, that's verse 11 in chapter 19, we have to look at the first 10 verses, those heavenly hallelujahs, praise and rejoicing preceding the return of Jesus. So let's turn to uh, chapter 19 and get started here. And by the way, have you noticed all the praise and worship that goes on in heaven before every judgment or, or big happening? We saw that first in chapters four and five when Jesus uh, is found worthy to open the scroll and all heaven breaks out in singing and praise and worship. And then we saw it with the judgment, silence before the judgments began. And before that seventh ju judgment, once again, praise and worship in heaven. And then Misty told us about chapter 14, the singing. It was a preview of Jesus coming back to earth. And then two weeks ago, we looked at chapter 15 and once again, singing in heaven. They were singing the song of Moses and the new song of the lamb before those final bowls of God's wrath were poured out. And now the heavenly hallelujahs, the hallelujah chorus before Jesus returns to earth. So let's begin reading verse one. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more, they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Hallelujah. John starts here in verse one and he says, after this. Now after this, that's referring to chapter 17 and 18 that we looked at last week. Because you remember in chapter 17, it begins with the angel saying to John, let me show you the judgment of the great prostitute. And then in chapter 18, it was the fall of Babylon. And John says, then he hears a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah. 
And this multitude probably is the martyred tribulation saints. Now we've said the tribulation saints, those who believe in Jesus after the time of tribulation begins. And some of them are persecuted and tortured and killed for their faith in Jesus. And now they are in heaven singing hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That is what hallelujah means. Praise the Lord. It is a Hebrew word and we see it throughout the Old Testament. But this is the first time that we see it in the New Testament. We see it right here in chapter 19 of Revelation. And we see it four times. We just read it four times in these six verses. And they praise the Lord for salvation and glory and power. Salvation. They, those belong to the Lord. Salvation. God, salvation. Salvation means deliverance, redemption, and it causes us to be thankful. It fills our hearts with gratitude. Glory, glory. God is holy. His shining brilliance of his righteousness, that's glory. And that leads us to awe and reverence. And then power. The power of God here is in light of judgment. And I read this one theologian that said, the power of God is exercised in the love of God. I love that. I love that thought. The power of God is exercised in the love of God. God is powerful and he is loving. And that causes us to trust in him, trust in God. And his judgments, they're true and just. They are right and fair. They're not too little and they're not too much. They're not too harsh and they're not too lenient. They are right righteous. They are true and just. And these judgments are of the great prostitute or of Babylon. And that's what we studied last week with chapter 17 and 18. The world power that was led by the Antichrist who had been put in power by Satan himself. And then the false world religion. It opposed Jesus. It actively denounced God. It ignored God. It mocked God. And it deceived others or forced others to also denounce the name of Jesus. Last week, we saw God's judgment pour down on Babylon. And so this second hallelujah that we see in verse 3, praise the Lord, it's for this final and eternal destruction. Never again will they be in power against the Lord. A couple weeks ago, I was reading Nahum 1.7. It's a great encouragement verse. And I thought it was interesting, the couple of verses that followed that, especially in light of this study. So on your verse sheet, I have written down Nahum 1, 7 and 9. Nahum's one of those little uh, minor prophets in the Old Testament. So look what he says. Verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. They will come to an end. And the multitude in heaven says, hallelujah. Our next hallelujah is in verse four. It's the 24 elders and the four living creatures. Now we've seen them before in Revelation. <clears throat> We've said that the 24 elders might represent the church, those Christians who put their trust in Jesus um, during that time from the resurrection up until right before the tribulation begins. And we said that they would be taken up to heaven with Jesus, and we call that the rapture. And those four living creatures, these are special angels who are before the throne of God. 
and they all fall down and they worship God saying, praise the Lord, so be it. So be it. Amen means so be it. So be these judgments. And hallelujah, praise the Lord. Then in verse 5 we read, And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. This voice coming from the throne is most likely not from an angel. And he's calling for everyone who loves the Lord now to praise him. Everyone praise him. And that verse there, that tense, is keep on praising. It's not just a one-time thing, but it's a continual praising. Keep on praising the Lord. And what is the response? We see it in verse 6. John hears a great multitude. Now it's really loud, like rushing waters, like that waterfall, or maybe peals of thunder, loud peals of thunder. And they are all shouting out, hallelujah, Hallelujah, the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And that praise is for Jesus. They're praising him in anticipation of his reign on earth. And as they think about Jesus reigning on earth, they also anticipate the exciting coming event that will take place as Jesus sets up his earthly kingdom. Let's look and see what that is. Verse 7. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. So here we see this exciting event, and it is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, the Lamb is Jesus Christ, and the bride is the church. Those of us who are raptured and caught up to meet the Lord in the air and taken to Him with Him to glory, we are the bride of Christ. And the marriage ceremony takes place right when we arrive in heaven at the rapture. And then the marriage supper or the wedding reception, it will take place at the beginning of the thousand year reign of Christ on earth. Okay, now some of you out there, I know you're kind of confused. You're thinking, what in the world are you talking about, Deb? What does this mean? So let me briefly explain marriage in these ancient Bible times. First, there was the engagement or they called it the betrothal. And that was a marriage contract, legal and binding. And the parents of the bride, they would go to the groom and they would have this marriage contract and he would sign it. And it's kind of like our engagement today, only it's legal and much more binding. It would take a divorce decree to end the betrothal. We remember reading about the betrothal of Mary and Joseph. Step two, the wedding takes place. They don't live together during the betrothal time, but at a certain time, the wedding ceremony would take place. The bridegroom comes with his friends to the home of the bride, and there they would have the wedding ceremony. And then step three, the bridegroom escorts her to his home for the wedding feast, for the wedding reception. It's called here the marriage supper. This is beautiful symbolism for the relationship of Jesus Christ and his church. Do you see it there? Every Christian, every believer, when we come to that moment that we believe in Jesus, we trust in him, we are joined to Christ, with Christ in a legal marriage contract. It is the betrothal. It's binding. 
Step two, at the rapture, when Jesus comes for his church and takes us to his home in glory, the the marriage ceremony, wedding ceremony, that's when that takes place. And then step three, the wedding reception, this marriage supper of the lamb, it will take place when Jesus comes back to earth and sets up his thousand year reign. And my big question, what are we wearing as the bride of Christ? It's the first question that I ask every newly engaged gal. Have you gotten your dress yet? What do you want it to look like? And then when the wedding happens, we all turn to look at the bride, the beautiful bride as she comes in with her beautiful wedding dress. When I was in college, Trisha Nixon was married in the White House. Her father uh, was Richard Nixon, President of the United States. This is 1971, and I loved her dress. I loved it. It was beautiful. It was different from what most of the wedding dresses looked then. It was kind of this sleeveless lace bodice, and it was so pretty that um, four years later, when I was married, I looked and looked everywhere to find a dress that I thought was similar. And so I have a picture of Trisha Nixon, if we want to put that up, and you see her beautiful wedding dress. And then there's a picture of me in my wedding dress. It's sort of similar, kind of looks a little bit like that. Love that dress. So I don't know about you, but I was so excited when I read verse eight and I found out what we were going to be wearing as the bride of Christ. Look at that again, verse eight. It says, the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So we are going to be wearing this beautiful, fine linen, dazzling, pure, and white. It is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, what does that mean? What does that look like? The righteous deeds of the saints. I want to talk about that for a moment. When we believe in Jesus, at that moment, we are justified. We are justified, we are made right with God. We are declared righteous and holy. But there is also a process of growing in righteousness. It's called sanctification. Sanctification is an ongoing process in the life of a believer. It's our human works as a product of God's grace. So God gives us ways to serve and then he works that out through us. It is our service to the Lord done through the power of the Holy Spirit. So righteous deeds are not those things that we do for self-gratification, to make ourselves feel good. Oh, I feel really good because I've done that today. Or self-glorification. We don't do these things so that others will look at us and think, oh, good job. Those are acts of service that are done in our own energy and for the wrong reasons, the wrong motives. They're not done through the Holy Spirit to bring God glory. Uh, Paul describes it very well in Philippians on your verse sheet, Philippians 1, 9. He says this, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Our righteous deeds are those things that we do for the glory of God through the power of Jesus. Those things that Jesus puts on our heart and we do them in his strength. So many things can be righteous deeds. Matthew 6, 1, Jesus warns us here though, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. 
some of those righteous deeds that you do through the power of Jesus Christ that might be you've taken a note to your neighbor or to several neighbors or maybe given them a small gift or just a word of encouragement because Jesus has put on your heart to encourage them. And so you do it because you love the Lord. Maybe it's praying wholeheartedly to the Lord, having a conversation with your beloved Savior. That's a righteous deed. Or maybe studying the Word of God because you want to know more about Jesus because you love Him. A righteous deed. Maybe it's contacting someone in your small group or checking on an elderly friend or relative, writing notes to those that are alone in their homes. Maybe it is just smiling at someone in the grocery store that looks pretty scared or tense. Any of those things could be righteous deeds. It's doing what Jesus puts on your heart and then doing it in his strength. And righteous deeds, those are the fine, beautiful, brilliant, glorious reward that we will wear as the bride of Christ. And who's invited to the marriage supper? We read here that all uh, those that come receive a blessing and those will be the tribulation saints, those who come to know the Lord during that time of tribulation, those that are martyred that are in heaven and those who make it through alive when Jesus comes back. And then also the Old Testament saints will be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb and they receive a blessing because with this invitation, comes a blessing. They will be blessed. What a glorious celebration this will be. And let's go on and finish up uh, verse 9 here. It says, And he said to me, this is the angel talking to John, These are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit of prophecy. So when the angel says to John, these are true sayings of God, John is overwhelmed by the grandeur of this prophetic vision. And so he falls down at the angel's feet and the angel says, no, no, worship God only. Worship God only. I think this is a good reminder for us to think about what is first place in our life? What are we worshiping? You know, it's easy. There's someone that loves the Lord that we're close to, maybe a mentor, and we um, admire them. And pretty soon we don't even realize that maybe we're worshiping them. We're putting them in a high first place in our life. Or maybe it's a relationship, your spouse or your grandchildren, a relationship that's very important to you. And you may realize it's beginning to creep into first place or other relationships. Maybe it's friends. Or maybe it's material things, something that is so special to you that it's kind of in first place. Maybe money, maybe our health, maybe toilet paper. <laughs> okay, I know you're laughing. Um, we don't worship toilet paper, but I have to say, I've never heard so much about toilet paper in my whole life. But what is first place in your life? Who is first place in your life? Let it be God and worship him only. And then I love what follows here. He says, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. All prophecy is designed to reveal Jesus, to unfold the beauty and the loveliness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John Walvoord says in his uh, commentary, Jesus is not only the major theme of the scriptures, but also the central theme of prophecy. 
This is what we've been talking about all semester. Jesus revealed this, that we're studying this book. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. The big reveal is Jesus. It's Jesus. We're not studying revelation to satisfy our own curiosity or to gain head knowledge so that we can recite every detail or every event during the tribulation. No, we are studying revelation to see Jesus to learn more about Jesus, to draw closer to him, to deepen our faith as we see him revealed, to worship him only. And now here we are. We have come to verse 11, Jesus coming back to earth. And I think it's going to be more glorious and more spectacular than we can even imagine as we read these words. And I've imagined this time so much over my lifetime, I can remember being a little girl and hearing about Jesus is coming again. And everyone says it with excitement. And then my grandmother used to say, Debbie, I think Jesus will come back in my lifetime. And I'd think, okay, and kind of look around. But now that I am older and I'm a grandmother, by the way, my grandmother has gone on to be with the Lord in glory. Now I'm older, I'm a grandmother, and I look around the world today and I think, Jesus, are you coming back in my lifetime? I think maybe you are. Now, I don't know that. I don't know when Jesus is coming back. It may be in another 2,000 years. But what I do know is when he comes back, it will be glorious, glorious. That uh, Christian singing group, Casting Crowns, has a song, and you may be familiar with it. The refrain goes like this. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sin far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day he's coming. Oh, glorious day. Oh, glorious day. Everything in Revelation has been building up to this day. Jesus Christ coming back to earth. Amen and hallelujah. Let's look at verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Wow, this is dramatic. This is awe-inspiring. John sees heaven opened. You know, this material world is separated from the eternal by a thin veil and this veil opens. And when it opens, John sees Jesus coming from heaven to earth and he's riding on a white horse. It's beautiful and it's dramatic. Jesus came to earth the first time as a baby born in a humble stable. He was the suffering servant. He died on the cross as an atonement for our sins. One theologian says in the cross and resurrection, Christ won the victory over the powers of evil. By his second coming, he will execute that victory. He comes again, ladies, to rid his creation of evil and to complete redemption forever. 
And now let me say that this second coming is totally different than when he comes in the clouds to rapture his church. Then he's only coming partway in the clouds and we go up to meet him. This time, second time, Jesus comes to earth to conquer his enemies and establish his kingdom. And we see here that Jesus is described in these verses with four names. And these names describe the divine judgment that is to follow. That first name, faithful and true. Jesus is faithful and true. He is who he says he is, and he does what he says he will do. He is sovereign and he is righteous and he is coming to judge. He is faithful to keep his promises, ladies, and his promises are true. That second name, that's a name written that no one knows but himself. What does that mean? You know, it's a mystery. I've thought about it a lot over these last few weeks. What does that mean? And I think for me, it really speaks to Jesus is glorious and eternal. He is God the Son. You know, sometimes I think I know Jesus, and so I sort of make him small, too small. It's not right of me. Jesus is God. He is much bigger than I can even imagine, and there is so much more about him to learn. And I picture that one day walking right next to him in glory and learning so much about Jesus, all those things that we do not know now, so much more to learn about him. And the third name, the Word of God. The Word of God, that is a familiar name. We have seen it already several times in Revelation. And John writes about it in his Gospel of John. Look on your verse sheet there. Uh, John 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the language of God. He came to earth to reveal the Father as the word of God. And just like we reveal ourselves, our thoughts, who we are with our words, our language, Jesus reveals the Father. He is the word of God, the language of God. And it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this name, word of God, is really uh, speaks to his incarnation how he came to earth the first time. And then this fourth name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is his victorious name. This really speaks to his coming to earth the second time. And I think this name is written on a banner across his robe. It says, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it goes across his thigh as he rides in on his horse. All kings, all lords must submit to him. There is no one over him. He alone is sovereign and has sovereign control. Ladies, this is his creation and he is sovereign over all of it and over all of us. King of kings and Lord of lords. Besides these four names, there are other descriptions of Jesus and they go along with these four names. First, we see here his eyes are like a flame of fire. Now, we've seen that description before. We saw it in chapters 1 and chapters 2 of Revelation. And we said that this really speaks to his righteous judgment. He's all-seeing. He's all-knowing. Nothing escapes him. And then we see that his head is crowned with many crowns. That word diadem there, that means the crown that a king would wear, someone who would have sovereign rule over the land and over the people. It's pretty easy to see the symbolism, many crowns, because Jesus has 
ultimate sovereignty. He is sovereign over all the land and all the people. And how is he dressed? It's a robe dipped in blood. Now this is probably not the shed blood of Jesus as the slain lamb. Instead, this is the bloodshed of his enemies. It is the judgment of wicked men. This blood anticipates the battle that is about to take place. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword. And this goes along with the name, Word of God. And this word here for sword, it uh, describes a long, large sword. And it's used to smite the nations. It's a visual picture representing judgment and the power to carry out that judgment against sin and evil and rebellion. And then one more graphic visual. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This winepress illustration would have been understood by those in John's times. It's understood by us today. We all sort of have a picture of that big vat, that wine press filled with grapes. And, and sometimes people get in there and they trample the grapes with their feet and then the juice runs out and it's made into wine. That's usually a joyful celebratory time, but not so with this, not so in this. This is a picture of Jesus treading the winepress of God. And it's filled with those people opposing God, his enemies. Misty talked about this in chapter 14. It's a graphic picture of God's judgment over those who spurn his grace. They turn away from him. They rebel against him. They mock him in arrogance. They're the ones that say, who is Jesus? Who is he? What is he? I don't care about him. I don't need to follow him. What difference does he make to me? In arrogance, they turn away. You know, Isaiah was a prophet in the Old Testament, and he has a vision uh, of a conversation that he's having with Jesus when he comes back the second time. And he's called the Messiah Warrior. And part of that conversation, I have Isaiah 63, 3. This is Jesus speaking, and he says this, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger, and I trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. There's that picture of the wine press again and also a picture of their blood splattering his garments. And then let's look back at verse 14. Who is coming with Jesus to earth? Look at 14. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Here we come, the bride of Christ, the raptured church. Those of us in heaven with him, we are coming on white horses down to earth with him. Probably the angels are coming along as well, but we will be riding on the white horses. And do you see the stark contrast, the clean and bright white coming down from heaven to this scorched, burnt earth, flattened by hailstones. The oceans and the rivers are running with dark, thick blood, an ugly earth. And now the battle begins. And this is the battle of Armageddon. Look with me in verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse 
and against his army. We see an angel calling out to the birds to come and eat to feast on all who are about to die and all classes of people. No unbeliever is spared, not one. You know, over and over again, we have seen God's mercy in Revelation. We saw it with the trumpet judgments. Only a third were destroyed. We saw that there were witnesses on earth testifying to Jesus as the atoning sacrifice, as the one who could save them, their only hope. But instead, they persecuted these witnesses. They tortured them. They did not accept Jesus. They didn't believe. Instead, they went and worshiped the Antichrist. And that army that we see here of the kings of the earth coming to fight with the Antichrist, that is the 200 million that we've been talking about, that 200 million that's crossing over the dried up Euphrates River. The Antichrist had called him the beast, had called them to come and fight with him against Jesus. And here it is. And what happens to the beast? Look at verse 20. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The beast, sometimes we call him the Antichrist. Shelley told us last week of his reign of deception and lies. He is a real person, lady set up into power by Satan himself. And his sidekick, a real person as well, the false prophet, his job was to make the beast look good. So he had done some signs and wonders to deceive the people so that they would receive the mark of the beast and then worship him. Now the beast and the false prophet are captured and they are thrown alive into the lake of fire. This is a description of hell. They will not torture or persecute or kill or deceive anyone anymore. Their reign of terror is over. It's over. Look at verse 21. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. All unbelievers who have rejected Jesus are now slain by the sword from his mouth. And many think that it's really just a word that he speaks, that this sword from his mouth represents the word of Jesus, the power of his word. He just speaks a word and they are slain. And those of us riding with him probably will not have to do anything except cheer as Jesus is the victor in this final battle. Jesus is the victor. It will be the very best of times for those of us who trust in Jesus, who believe in him and walk with him. And it will be the very worst of times for those who have rejected him. The worst of times. One day God will bring every evil work into judgment and those who spurn his grace must experience his wrath. So what is my response to chapter 19? How am I going to live my life in anticipation of Jesus coming again? Well, I thought of three things here. There's many ways. First, I want to praise the Lord. I want to join in to this hallelujah chorus. I want to praise him. I want to thank him for all that he has done for me, for all that he's given me, for who he is. I want to thank him for his blessings, for his 
provision, for his protection, for his peace. And I want to worship him only every day. I want to take time to worship Jesus. And then I want to trust in the Lord. He is powerful. We see that in this chapter 19. Jesus is powerful and he is loving and his plans are good. He is faithful and true. His plans for us are good. And then I want to share the good news of Jesus. I want to tell others about Jesus. I want others to know who Jesus is so they can be on the side of Jesus, not on the side of those experiencing his wrath. You can tell others your good news story of Jesus. Now, maybe you don't have a good news story of Jesus. Maybe you've never made that decision to believe in him, to trust in him, to put your faith in him. And maybe right now, today is the time that you want to do that. Just pray. Just pray and tell Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you came to earth to die on the cross, to pay the penalty for my sin, that I might have life eternal. Pray that. Pray that prayer. And then call someone because now you have a good news story of Jesus. Or call me. I would love to know anyone that has made that decision today. Call me, share the good news story of Jesus. John 3, 16 tells us this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Believe in Jesus, choose life. And I wanna close today with some encouraging words, some verses from Psalm 34. In these hard times, in these trying times, um, maybe you're seeing the good in these Times. Let's look at this encouragement from Psalm 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Jesus is coming back one day. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, you are good and you are great, and we thank you, Lord, that you sent your son, Jesus, to die on the cross for us, to be the atonement for our sin, that we might have eternal life with you. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for these precious words from Revelation. I pray, Lord, that everyone listening, that these words would go deep in our heart that we would worship you, that we would turn to you and follow you. Thank you, Lord, and we love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.